Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring creative journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali, and this is episode 13. My guest today is Till Novak. Till is a German digital artist, filmmaker, and concept designer on many recent Hollywood blockbusters. He's recently worked on films like Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Thor Ragnarok, most recently The Lion King, and currently working on Wes Ball's The Mouse Guard. Quick reminder that Wes himself was also a guest on this podcast a few episodes back, so feel free to check it out if you haven't already. Prior to moving to LA, Till directed three short films, Delivery, The Centrifuge Brain Project, and Dissonance, which altogether won more than 80 international awards. Perhaps worth mentioning, Till does all of his visual effects work himself. But besides his obvious technical proficiency, which is a point of envy in by itself, Till's work also stands out because of its creative and visual signature. He combines uh, highly complex, surreal constructs that sometimes reminds you of uh, the work of M.C. Escher, uh, together with gritty documentary-style live-action footage, all baked together with a great sense of pacing and peppered with some amazing musical backdrops. Needless to say, I'm a big fan of his work. I've been a fan of his work for a long time. But I really recommend checking his work before listening to this podcast. First of all, because it's amazing. And second of all, it'll put everything in perspective for you. You can check his work at his own website, which is framebox.com, or on this episode's webpage at thepostpostpodcast.com. Finally, I'm super grateful that I've had the honor uh, and privilege to sit with Till for two hours and uh, talk about his journey, about how he got to where he is today and about where he's headed. He was a very generous guest, uh, offering a lot of anecdotes and uh, funny stories and also uh, keeping the whole conversation flowing and making sure that uh, specific information tidbits are not lost uh, in the shuffle. And I think this episode is all the better for it. So without further ado, I give you episode 13 of the Post Post Podcast. Who is Til Novak? Who is Til Novak? So um, from today's perspective... I'm a German digital artist who does all kinds of things like uh, lots of movie concept art, film design, but also my own um, visual effects and short film projects. I direct short films and do fine arts who moved to the US uh, four years ago from Germany. But going back 38 years, that's when I was born, 1980, I grew up in a family of artists and then um, from there, we did projects every day. My parents are both artists, so my brother is now an artist as well. So we every weekend we had... What does your brother do? What kind of art? Um, he does um, mainly incredible sound sculptures, sound machines that are artistic sculptures in museums and galleries and performances. Um, and Which is it, pretty unique. I mean, I'm, I'm going to just interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, feel, no, no, <laughs> uh, please. Feel free to not... To stop me from interrupting you, uh, but your music, your your films also kind of have sound sculptures in them, don't they? In a way. Um, let me think. Well, the last one, Dissonance, Dissonance um, has a crazy instrument in it—a rotating round piano—and yet, definitely, there is a lot of intersection between what my brother does and what I do now. Like we right. were pretty different in the past, or when we grew up, we were very different types in a way. Like I was the like 
nerd nerdy electronic guy and he was more of a wild um hip-hop reggae dreadlock dude and 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 he was the wild one i was the nerdy one and is he older than uh, you he's one year younger younger okay yeah just a little bit younger but then um so we we were very different went down very different paths in a way i went very corporate business not really but i i founded my own company and wor worked a lot and hard and he moved to berlin from frankfurt or from Mainz, where we are from uh, near frankfurt and um And then, like, but in around our mid-20s, we kind of met, our paths met again. So we now, we then became much more similar than we were in the past. Like, I adapted stuff from him, like um, fine arts, basically. I saw him doing fine arts, and I, it inspired me so much that I kind of shifted gears a little bit, like 10, 15 years ago, and, and went strongly in that direction. And he saw me working on all these bigger... Um, like pop projects in a way and um and i think he he became much more interested in that rather than being only free and only um yeah only art kind of uh, yeah centered like, or self-expression right, right, right. getting interested centered, in the yeah. more more in the world that's more organized basically yeah. than the than so the did you art. move to berlin then and meet him there or did no i meant meet by meet i meant um Character-wise, oh, just okay. so that we uh, became closer to each other again, like or more similar, like talked a lot, did projects together, and 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 found very interesting what the other one, what what we like found the other one, found each other very interesting. Yeah. Suddenly, like brothers, first like during our youth, we were like fighting a lot and and competing in a way, um, and then. Suddenly, like around 25 or so, I guess we, we realized, wait a minute, that other guy there that I grew up with is, is pretty interesting in a way. I think that's, that's interesting. So yeah. so it's like kind of rediscovering your, your sibling in a way. In a way, yeah. Although, Did you have other siblings or is it, or no, is it just, just the two of you? the two of us. And are your yeah. parents also artists? Yes. Um, they, like my dad is an arts teacher, although they're both retired now just since a year or two. Um, so he teaches art and also paints in his own atelier. My mom had uh, pottery classes for kids that she gave in her own pottery uh, space in Germany after she um, was leading a, a social project that was for elderly people to make arts and crafts and so as kids we for example we, we went with our parents to arts and crafts markets where they sold their um, sculptures and things did and you so also that's do pottery we, yourself with your mom or yeah that's one of the many things we did like i think part of what why we are doing what we're doing now my brother and me which is like a wide spectrum of things is because we grew up with that like pottery was maybe one weekend the next weekend was maybe a stop motion film and the next weekend was maybe a a, a computer made of cardboard or something Wait, like stop motion film like with your parents yeah my dad Luckily, from school, from being a teacher at school, he got a he, uh, he had a camera at school that he could bring home. So we had a VHS and a stop motion camera as like five year olds. Wow! Which back in the eighties was rather rare. So that's how it basically all started. The whole film mania that I have, <laughs> I guess, is there are now. We still have an archive of um, many films that like start when I was and my brother was like three, four, five years old. Then later we did our own films, little TV shows and stuff. So it was always around us. And 
And stop motion, yeah, I remember I had this analog trigger in my hand and had my Lego stuff. And so we did like 1985 or so, we did Lego stop motion animations, little ones. Wow. That's like, I'm trying to think of an equivalent in, in other professions, but it's basically kind of like building, like playing with Lego and then becoming an architecture, and, and, you know, in a way, an architect or... Yeah, in our family, I, I once realized just recently that it's that what I do now is kind of a buildup of three generations. My grandfather from my dad's side was an engineer. He built um, buildings in the city of Mainz where we grew up or engineered them, planned them. But he also was very um, talented in craft. So there are wooden carved things that he did. I never met him. He died before I was born, mm -hmm. but um, carved wooden objects um, like wall pieces etc that were incredibly like well done like high uh, uh, high skills but it wasn't it was really only on the side and my dad made it his his profession so he lived um, as an artist but as an arts teacher not really making his money from the arts it, it, uh, 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 itself yeah. and my mom also um, although she comes from a family of, of doctors but um Uh, uh, started a creative life and now me and my brother the third generation basically counting from my grandfather are the first who basically live from our own project creative projects all the time uh, so the two of like, you are, are full-time uh, artists essentially. kind of yeah i mean with me being at least half also in the in the creative industry entertainment mm -hmm. industry and the other half free while my brother is more free basically right. he's uh, almost 100 like just Uh, free art so yeah that's fa fascinating it's very unique I mean my, my parents are my father is a doctor my mom is a teacher but like technical like an um, engineer um, electrical engineer and she teaches that so neither of them have you know creative arts background but uh, it's, it's weird it's interesting how and you're a VFX supervisor so yeah. in a way in a way I can see doctor and um, what did you say electric engineer no. electrical engineer yeah. electric, I can see those two things flow together into a VFX right <laughs> yeah they do I mean do. science I think science is such a creative thing too uh, like science right. and engineering are for me are art forms I mean you can see that in my my work as well I think with the amusement rides and the plans that I designed for the amusement rides I don't know if you saw that actually I've seen um, uh, Centrifuge yeah, which is kind of a crazy amusement yeah, ride but uh, I didn't I know mean. that you yeah that yeah. one yeah oh it's definitely and, there's a lot of design in there like you clearly like work, worked on it well yeah what from I mean a practical is, standpoint kind of I mean that um, an elaborate machine and its function uh, basically are um, almost can be in a, a form of, art, of artistic expression in my yeah. in my eyes um, and I, I, I want to get to that because I, I'm definitely finding like a lot of first of all kind of these these uh, re recurring themes in your work because I just recently I mean I don't um, talking about uh, dissonance we'll get to that later right, it's, right. it's your recent most recent short film right yes um, So that reminded me of an older project, of a few older projects of yours that I've seen. Uh, one was the uh, the music video that you did with uh, with the uh, buildings kind of rebuilding, right. rebuilding themselves. So there's a lot of 
um, mechanics, like you play a lot with mechanics in your work and, and the intricacies of, of how those things and like breaking them apart, putting them back together, that kind of yeah, uh, yeah. beauty in that. Um, but I wanted to kind of go, go back. So how did you get into 3D? Did you start with 3D Studio Max or? Um, right, good question. So let me first, I think if we have listeners who don't know what we're talking about, we should probably tell them. Um, so you can either go to framebox.com, my website, right, yeah. or Instagram. I've just started a month ago putting something out every day. Really? Under, uh, till.novak, which is T-I-L-L dot N-O-W-A-K. Yeah. Um, so I have basically almost zero followers. So On Instagram. Okay, well, hopefully <laughs> it'll change. It's like I'm sometimes ridiculously behind things. Like I used an old style, 90, 90, like kind of a 90s cell phone until AT&T wrote me a letter two years ago that they're switching off the 2G network and that I have to switch to a smartphone. <laughs> oh so they gave me their cheapest, two worst years smartphone for free. So that's... The, the strange side of someone who's super techy on the one end, but not interested in updating on other ends. Anyway, that's why I'm uh, very fresh on Instagram. Anyway, so <laughs> you asked how, how, how did I get into it? Well, I'm the one from our family, the only one that went digital early. So in when I was like... So completely just, just opposing what you just said about being an Yeah, no, I'm a adopter. total tech dude. Right. Like, absolutely. <laughs> but I am, I'm only upgrading... Or going with the newest developments when I need, like when I see a need to, and never. Yeah. So I, I just, I think that changed. Like 15 years ago, I was the one buried. I, I buried myself in in all new software, all new machines. I was sitting in a room, like really, literally stacked with 10 computers and 15 monitors. Um, and and then at some point, I had no more time for any of that playful, fun exploration and 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 kind of downsized to only going with the exactly the thing that I need right now for my task. Right. So, so if, if my old phone works, I'm, I would use it for the next 50 years until I see a specific need to upgrade. So I'd never had the urge, although I must say, I always carry an iPad with me, a big iPad. So it's not like I'm totally behind yeah. the moon. I have my big office, like, <laughs> iPad could it, with is, me. It, is it possible? I'm just, I'm just, just checking just uh, out of curiosity. Is it possible that, Back then, let's say 15 or 18 years ago, the person with the new newest computer was the outsider or the kind of, you know, the mm -hmm. avant-garde. And nowadays, anytime there's a new iPhone coming out, everybody must have it. So the person who's kind of the outsider has to be Actually, behind in a way. I haven't thought about that, but maybe you're right. Because I... It's kind of a principle, I think, for like in my works, trying to do exactly the one thing that is not the typical thing to do. Like if right. as, as soon as I see something, I, I mean, speaking of cliches or stereotypes in art or film, if I come across a scene in any of my films that would feel like a cliched scene or something that has been done a lot, I would totally back up and uh, like <laughs> do something completely different. So maybe I haven't thought of that of that this way but maybe it, it has to do with that yeah yeah right I mean, now when changed. everybody jumps for the new iphone i would probably <laughs> somehow yeah. be turned off i don't know or or i would think well they they they'll all test it out for me and um <laughs> they'll run into all the problems and yeah i don't yeah. know it's, that's kind of how i i i'll tell you that my my moment of switching from like an old flip phone to like the, an an iphone essentially happened in 2011 i think or so um, and I remember clearly why that happened. It was because I was, um, 
I was sitting in a cafe with a friend of mine who had a new iPhone and uh, he just received an email and the email said, um, there's going to be a masterclass with Steven Spielberg. Huh. I was part of AFI at the time at the American oh, yeah. Film Institute. I was a student there. And they said, uh, the first 50 people to respond to this email are going to be able to get into the masterclass. And, and he was like, okay, just, you know, responded right away on his phone. And I was like there sitting without oh, any possibility no. to reply. Luckily, that <laughs> cafe was like around the corner from my place. So I was like, you know, I threw out a hundred dollar bill and just <laughs> ran back to my place to like respond. And I, and I got into that you masterclass, in. but, but it was like a good kind of wake up call to be like, well, you know, sometimes it's good to be able to answer the email right away. Of course, it's like very rare that something like this happens, but, it, that, but it, that was for yeah, me the... You are right, because that, that's, that would be a trigger to say there's a need, like you have a specific need for that, yeah. as opposed to just always updating to whatever is the newest. So right. that's just exactly, so we're very much on the same page there, <laughs> yeah. but uh, glad you got in. Um, so you were in this masterclass with 50 people and Steven Spielberg. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that was pretty I'm awesome. A little jealous. Um, um, well, you can watch it online. It's on, they filmed it too. It's uh, from TNT. I, I might actually. I might. Because he is, I mean, many people say, or in the, so I'm, I feel myself being half in the kind of European art house character drama world and the other half, or maybe a little more than the other half, being in the big magic of cinema and so there steven spielberg for me is obviously i mean of course yes. a huge hero although when you mention him in the more um art house um uh, circles um uh people uh, like uh, frown upon him kind of right. like, oh well that's like that's like cheesy, cheesy popcorn and, yeah. but i i'm i just love his like um What's it? What what was the English title? I only know the German title. Was it uh, "Strange Encounters of the Third Kind"? Is it "Close Encounters"? Close Encounters. Close, close, close Encounters. encounters. <laughs> right, that one. Uh, I mean, I just rewatched it recently. Such a masterpiece. What reminded me of is like you know the the you you mentioned in, in when we talked before about music and how you are also a musician. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and and I kind of want to kind of understand because. So, so people who who don't who who don't know, I'll, I'll maybe I'll, it's time to like give you my introduction of, of how I got to kind of. Yeah, actually, I don't know how you got to me, so I would yeah, be interested that's the thing. to hear. I I believe it was through a few things. I, I don't remember which work exactly it was, but it might have been the window crossing the street, uh -huh. which was a, a short. Eight. It's like maybe yeah. 14 seconds long or something like that. Yeah, or, some, even, or, or yeah, under 30 seconds, something like. 20. So 2008. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this very short snippet yeah. uh, that had uh, that is basically a live action shot that you tracked and you and you made this window that is part of one building on one side of the street, basically kind of deconstruct itself into this amorphic kind of right. uh, cement creature that jumps, hops over a few cars, and then just ends up jumping and landing on the other on the building on the other side, becoming yeah. a window on the other side of the yeah. of the street, which. I thought it was just, you know, brilliant when I saw that because it's kind of like this, you know, I think at that point in time back in 2008, people used visual effects, obviously, in films and for me, you know, but I think it was kind of like the beginning of, of what, when you see individuals doing visual effects um, gags in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So back then there was no Snapchat, there was no Instagram, there's no Facebook to, to the extent that it is now and, and people didn't really kind of make short 
things and that they can send around like they right. do nowadays. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, in that time, I had a couple of viral things going on before that was such a thing. So now it's a business. It's like some people live from, or many, there's a whole culture about right. that that I'm not that much of a part right now. Uh, but back then, um, like that was one. But two years earlier, something that went around like crazy was my vegetable alien i don't know if you saw that i, uh, I did so see that it's a it's a, just a still right it's Or? just a still and that yeah. was before that was 2006 so i think youtube was maybe just founded or something right. it was like early days still that was at, that was at the time where, where cg talk was kind of the biggest yeah, exactly. uh, form that for, was my for cg yeah. artists and that that might be also one one place oh, that maybe I, because that I if my my stuff got like front page there a couple of times yeah, like including sure. that um a vegetable alien and those were the times yeah like front page and <laughs> cg talk big deal um yeah. and good old days so the, right and then maybe my short film delivery that oh yeah oh it, yeah of course that won um the two short film awards at ifi fest 2005 really which were handed to me by jury president patty jenkins who now made wonder woman After oh, a long wow. break of not making films, but that I was 2005. That, yeah. Was my first trip to the U.S. First time in L.A. as a little like as a boy from Germany, always looking to Hollywood as this exotic, amazing, faraway thing. Suddenly, being in, in the middle of it, like and and get and get and receiving those awards for my for my first short film, which was also my graduation film from studying media design in, in yeah. Germany. That was an amazing like boost and changed a lot for me so from then on i steered kind of over to away from the kind of um advertising oriented design world the agencies the creative agencies and all that that i saw myself in until that point and then suddenly i was like wait a minute there's doors open to make big films or any films and To, to step into that world. And it took me another 10 years from there, so from 2005 to 2015, until I moved here because I had so much going on in Germany. I had my company that I founded um, in 98 when I was 18, still at school, doing lots of TV work. And when you have so much like going on, like clients and projects nonstop, it's a little hard to cut that down or make a big leap because stuff is always going on there's like yeah. no point to stop and say now i'm going to move to the u.s so it took me 10 years to kind of gently steer my whole lifestyle and my orientation artistically and everything to that point where then we already had our two-year-old daughter and i'm married and all that and like when we together decided to move here um and that must have been even harder than with the kid like because you yeah. you always think of those moves as something that people usually rather do before they have kids or um uh, yeah actually so we made the decision before we had nelly our daughter who is now five and and then once we had the green card and everything it took a while um she was already two years old when we moved and i i felt then during the move that we wouldn't have made that decision anymore after we have had the baby so we basically caught the last train kind of in our life to make that move because we made the decision bef just before we had the baby oh i see <laughs> so everything was going like the green card process and all that and now we have two kids another one-year-old uh, little son um <laughs> and and now our schedule is like 
um, squeezed to the very last minute and there would be no way we would make a big move like that now with two right. kids so we kind of yeah really make it made it like caught the last minute uh, uh, opportunity before <laughs> being too tied in into life and and that was it worked out great um but returning to your you had one question you asked me like hours ago that i did yeah about ask, like how i got or, into yeah, it and everything so yeah so i went digital in my family 12 13 14 years old my mom i think age 12 bought me a computer because i wanted it so much i had seen like friends and others with little play com like uh commodore or amigas and all that but my mom wanted to buy me a real computer a pc and um Uh, although we didn't have any money, like my parents were divorced or are divorced and um, there was no money for any luxury items, but that was like the big, big deal, what she did. So um, buying me that thing. And from that moment, I, I was glued to it, which isn't necessarily what I would wish for my son, for example, but at Is that a 386 or something like that? Or? Yeah, actually it was a 286. 286, yeah, 286 okay. wow. with 16 megahertz, the first <laughs> one. And immediately I started, like, I got this big, it had, came with this big manual. 16 was a turbo. It was 10 and then you click on it and it I becomes did, 16. That one didn't yet have a turbo button. Oh, really? Button. The next one had okay. one. Yeah. No, gotcha. turbo button, I was very jealous. <laughs> I didn't have one. Um, and, well, the, the manual, I had to wait for it I don't know why, just I think for Christmas or something, I had a month of waiting. And, and that month mm -hmm. I was so crazy about uh, starting to do something with it that I read that whole manual, super boring. It was like an <laughs> MS-DOS manual. And, and part of that manual was QBasic, an early programming language. And so I started learning that just because I needed to like, so before, so be, not only, so when I started with that, I didn't start with um, just with gaming, but already with making things, um, okay. programming things. And that probably came from our childhood where we always made things. And that went on, then took it like basically from there on until now, I've, I've never left the di digital field, but it, take it took a detour over music. So age 16, 17, 18, when you're going out to party and get drunk and like d discover life, um, It was not filmmaking or design or anything. It was m music. In my case, EDM, like techno, yeah. German, the source of techno, <laughs> basically, um, that I made with the computer. And um, then I mixed it a little and worked together with two guitarists. So I made electronic percussions and they played analog guitar with it, <clears throat> which we actually released as an album. Oh, wow. And... Um, That's, What was the software they used for the music? Uh, Steinberg Cubase. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I wasn't a logic guy. I was a Cubase mm. guy. So there's always logic. Or Cubase yeah, I know. Um, Me too. I used to play with Cubase a bit. Ah, probably cool. around the same time when I was younger, I think. No, actually, I don't know. Because you say during high school. That's like the early um, days of Cubase. Yeah. It must have been. Mm, it was already on the step to VST, the virtual studio environment. When, yeah. when when stuff when you had emulated instruments, that was like the time when I started using mm. when that started. So it wasn't the early early. The early early days were kind of Cubase on the Atari, I think, where you just recorded MIDI, but I already yeah. recorded audio with it. And then a friend, a very good friend of mine, Tobias Hofer, who I first started my company with, um, Framebox. Um, brought me to 3ds Max, 
I, I went to study media design and as a graduation film, I made delivery and um, it's a nine minute fully CG animated film that I, I can't look at it anymore right now and now because it's so outdated from my point of view now, obviously, like the, <laughs> yeah. the animation is horrible and everything. But back then it was, um, it, it got quite some uh, attention, like for a one man production, basically done in four or five months of work. Um, and what had happened, there was no YouTube or Vimeo then. So what I did is I, I put a DivX file, an AVI video DivX file on, on a website. And that was um, yeah in 2005. And that link spread like crazy. So it was, I got a call like a couple of days later from the university that there was some kind of like problems with their server, like the bandwidth was exceeded and stuff because <laughs> there were hundreds of thousands of downloads of this. It was wow. a 100 megabyte file. So people downloaded that movie, uh, 100 megabytes, that short film. And that times like times 200,000 or so made quite like for those times back of then, course, there was yeah. like just DSL maybe with 700K or I don't know how wow. much came just out. There was no 50 megabits or something like that. It was like low speed internet. How did it spread so internet. fast, you well, think? I don't know. I think it was like forums like CG Talk and others. And then it got a favorite website award, this FWA award and other lots, lots of attention suddenly out of nowhere. And that started... A lot of things like I, have, I have still have a lot of great relationships even very very important ones that i work with today that came from that first short film and delivery remind me was that about the guy who gets a package and he lives like kind of downwind from a big uh yeah exactly from yeah. a big like power fact power factory or something right. like that yeah some kind and of he, polluting city that he lives outside of and there is this kind of world within a world twist there yeah, where yeah. The, the box is essentially like a mini universe kind exactly of yeah, yeah it's a um yeah it's a world in a world in a world kind of yeah then what uh, does he do with the factory he puts it in yeah like he a, he he cares about one little flower that he has that maybe is the last flower on earth you could think mm -hmm. the way it looks and um he out of nowhere gets sent this box where he realizes that everything he does or that everything is that in the box is his outside world. So everything he does through a hole in the box also happens big outside of his window in the real world. Um, so he plants, he takes that city out of the ground and plants it in his flower pot because he can do that by pulling it out of that box and puts the, the plant, his flower in the place of the city, which is then gigantic. <laughs> it's a very like, pretty simple symbolic story and um, I, I didn't know much about writing back then I know a little more about writing now because I took classes then at some point but <laughs> um, but it's still it's it works poem. yeah it's like yeah. yeah like yeah visual poem let's say and I never did well I did I did all my little short films as a kid and lots of experimentations but never a piece that this one I wanted to feel cinematic in a way and mm -hmm. it seemed to work because it made its way then to to the AFI Fest winning winning there and winning another 30 festivals or so and by the way it was through the AFI award it was even Academy Award qualified but I could not enter it because it was in the internet before and oh. that rule doesn't exist anymore so I had so my first short film delivery was qualified for Oscar 
um, yeah, consideration, but disqualified at the same time for being in the internet. Then my second one, Centrifuge Brain Project, was also qualified through awards. Um, but funny enough, it in, it was I think it was in the animated category, mm. although it only has animated. That was always my trouble. And then my third short film, I, it didn't make it to the shortlist, obviously. And then my third short film, Dissonance, also was Academy Award qualified. Um, also didn't make it to the short list. Also, I mean, not that it should have. I mean, there are many, many more amazing films out there. But one of the troubles was always, is it animated or live action? Because my stuff is hybrid. Yes. Except the first one, but the others are all hybrid. Yeah. And that is a tricky thing. Like, nobody knows where to put it. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I love the fact that it's hybrid. There's something just so kind of almost unique about it for some reason. Like, you know, you, even nowadays, after so many ye like years, we're talking about, you know, maybe 15 years, it's a lot of, not a lot of time, but like <laughs> considering now it's so widely available for everyone to use, the fact that there's still this kind of big gap between films that are live action and then films that are animated, there's not a lot of... Nope. Absolutely. I, I find, I mean, I made it a little bit of my mission or my interest to surf basically on the edge between those two worlds because I'm a little bit at home in both worlds. So I worked on animation films. I did a lot of animation, but um, also a lot of live action and, and have a huge passion for live action because there is like the reality, the, the tangibility and grittiness of real real dust on things kind of is something I'm very much um, uh, uh, like uh, in dema uh, demanding or from from any any work that I love but so the funny thing is what I, I see always is yes those two worlds are almost zero interested in, in, in each other like the animation people the true animation people really like are full on animators it it seems like they're 100% in this world. Like they're, um, there's little crossover um, and same for the live action people. So yeah. it's, it's and, and that same thing also applies to fine arts and pop culture, which I'm also trying to surf on the edge of by doing it all basically and trying to almost collide it or clash it um, as harsh as I can. And sometimes in some works where, where I think like, like dissonance for example dissonance my goal was making a full-on like art house type character drama drama and cl and clashing that with kind of epic um, um yeah hollywood magic vfx yeah. animation um and seeing what happens if you really combine it because i don't feel any limits between these media right. or worlds like for me they're um but they are uh, culturally the, culturally they are totally are there these limits like there's as you say oh, there's little crossover yeah so. it reminds me of uh, a few things it reminds me a little bit of uh, neil blomkamp's work right good i wonder good you know because tetraval and live in joburg alive in joburg those were also shorts that were yep. like i mean specifically centrifuge which is kind of half documentary in a way by the way the performance there the guy who plays the oh it's so amazing well i have to tell you about how that came together but first neil blomkamp yes district nine was the first i saw of him really and i didn't know his shorts before but that blew me away like completely um 
absolute amazing. I still, when I watch it, I, I absolutely love it. So that was, I was already half in doing those things, but that was another push. Yeah, going like uh, like kind of seeing something that I uh, uh, felt like was exactly the direction, except the violence. Like I'm, I'm everything I do is kind of non-violent so i don't yeah. like weapons or martial uh, any martial non-violent against people but not against buildings yeah no exactly i mean I, I, <laughs> no of course fetish. i mean no also violence there is i love there are lots of movies that i love that have violence um, but in 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 different like it, it depends on the way like i don't like glorifying it yeah or here uh, uh, um like showing in two heroic ways but like for example a great example for me is children of men which is brutal in yes. a way but but as a necessity it's right. storytelling and it's real it feels real it's like what violence is in our world and not not a not not a tool that you use yeah. to simply solve problems and and yeah anyway so i mean even even like a, a slap in the face in that film feels feels so as if it painful. feels like it would in the real world yeah um that's the when it works is, for me yeah. anyway i i absolutely love district nine um and and you mentioned the actor of my short so the that aspect of reality like mixing reality and fantasy seamlessly first of all technically i think one big key to that is um match moving as a technology so when you mentioned the windows crossing the street that little piece of mine it was basically my discovery of match moving it's like oh i can film anything with a shaky hand camera and no markers no preparation nothing absolutely spontaneous and then put my digital add-ons on top of that um by the way i use the amazing and affordable program synth eyes um, that's how you did love it? it yeah yeah and i, and I, I always love that synth eyes has this I don't know if it still has it, but in the version, in my unupdated version from 2010 <laughs> or so, it has uh, this big, fat, huge uh, green auto. Auto, like yeah. You, you, you give it anything and you press auto and it just <laughs> automatically does it. If, if it's an uncomplicated shot, it does it right. So <laughs> that was for me the key to do, to do um, the windows, the window, but then yeah. the centrifuge brain project with my crazy amusement rides with no preparation. I had a tiny camera... And, and, and just totally spontaneous shot that stuff and it digitally extended it. And that's where District 9, I think, also um, it uses the, yeah, this documentary-like real, realism and, and puts seamless VFX on top, looking spontaneous, looking unprepared, looking like it's happening right now. That's, that's kind of the, the language. Um, but back to the actor of my of the centrifuge brain project because I have to start further back to explain how, who he is and why he's so amazing in that role. <laughs> um, so for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about uh, on. Oh, I, they will. We'll, we'll definitely put oh, like yeah. a video of centrifuge okay, on, okay, yeah. on the you, page. I mean, they will, if they, if they bother looking at the page, of course they, they might just listen to it on. Right. Well, you find it on iTunes on my website, will. or if you Google centrifuge brain project. So in 2006, I had made this vegetable alien, right? Um, so, which was a spontaneous idea of just um, showing 
um, the H.R. Giger's Alien from Ridley Scott's Alien movie from 1980 or 79 um, as, as a composition of vegetables like Giuseppe Archimboldo did in the 16th century. So it's a yes. combination, it's a tribute basically to Archimboldo crossing Giger, yeah. who, by the way, is not called Geiger. Many Americans think it's H.R. Geiger, but it's H.R. Giger. Giger. Um, okay. Yeah, very much so. Um, <laughs> he's also German, right? <coughs> he's Swiss. Oh, Swiss. Okay, my um, bad. And um, he was, his work was always on my radar. Like I grew up with it. Like I saw like the record cover of Emerson Lake and Palmer's um, brain salad surgery, which he mm. designed. I saw um, his work on the Dune covers of the Dune, Dune books, um, yeah. Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, I saw uh, Alien and Species and it, it appeared, wherever it appeared, Giger's work in the 80s, you would immediately think, whoa, that is one of a kind, that's that style that I've seen somewhere that's absolutely unique, that was an absolutely iconic thing to me, was H.R. Giger's style. And, yes. and also somewhat forbidden, because he went into these very dark and very, um, what do you say, like um, pornographic sexual spaces. So it has a, had a super forbidden aspect as well, making it even more interesting, and just absolutely unique, because nothing uncomparable to anything else which I now also have an explanation for why that is um, which I'll come back to later so that was always around and I've never really processed it fully until I made that alien spontaneously in 2006 when I was uh, 26 years old and then I, I put it out there online and I thought and it went viral pretty quick it got on the front page of CG Talk and got lots of feedback and stuff and I thought oh I have to send it to Giger himself or something I didn't know him at the time personally Yeah. and then I looked online and I found the website of his agent um, uh, Leslie Barony but it looked so threatening like he had posted <laughs> letters like on his website were letters that he had written to Fox or Giger had written I don't know um like arguing, uh, being really tough as a as as a def uh, um, like uh, 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 as his um, representative, etc. So I thought, oh my god, no, they're like rip me in pieces for like taking Giger's work and reinterpreting it, and and I got like kind of afraid and didn't mail it to them. But two months later, I suddenly had an email in my um, that was two days after Christmas. I remember uh, <laughs> two thousand six from Leslie in my mailbox out of nowhere that they had gotten the image from somewhere and they loved it and they invited me um, basically to come visit and work with wow. them and everything so I was absolutely like uh, it was my absolute dream come true basically um, that that in, like that out of nowhere they they came across the image and, and wanted to, uh, to work with me so a week later or so I jumped into my car and dr just drove down to Zurich where Giger lives um, and that was then January 2007. And um, so I lived in, in Mainz still in my hometown in Germany. And from there, it's you can get everywhere in Europe in a few hours with the car, which is pretty amazing. Awesome. <laughs> so we uh, started lots of little projects or, well, so I, I, I met Giger and his wife, Carmen. And, uh, and then a little later, also Leslie, who lives in New York, his agent, and we started lots of little things and experiments and projects together. I um, experimented and did a lot of work with them on The Mystery of San Gotardo, which is a book by Giger okay. that is um, 
has always been a plan to be turned into a movie. So we work towards that. Um, so he basically, you would kind of do artwork together? He would use... Animations. Animations, yeah. really. Uh, 3D models first, then rigging, animating them, um, going back and forth between Zurich, um, their place, and, and mine's my place, and showing them the progress and... Um, so he would like draw blueprints and stuff like that, and you would kind of transform that into 3D and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, kind of. I mean, he had, for the Mystery of Sangotaro, an incredible amount of drawings, and it's, it's, he's been working for decades on it. Wow. So, um, and I just ran it through my 3D, 3D-fication uh, <laughs> uh, process. Kind did of. you also and, use Match Move and like plant yeah, it in real? I, yeah, I really? did. Yeah, but all of that is yet totally unpublished and un, like under wraps. Um, Why? But well, because it's a it's a possible project in development. So oh, I see. Um, yeah, and Do making you, like, a, become a film. Eventually, sometime making yeah. films is is a big and complicated thing, especially if it's um, weird indie. <laughs> ideas yeah. and not the most uh, wow. tentpole um, however so we had um, it was a most amazing time for me to be able to to be friends with them and like um, uh, stay I, I could stay over at their place and celebrate New Year's with them etc so and um, they're just the most gentle and most amazing people and so my explanation for why um why his art is also so fascinating is because I think it's it's the most truthful kind of art, meaning it is totally from within Giger. So he, I, I don't think he ever sat down and like conceptualized every, every any of that. Like, oh, um, I need to make something like this and it would have to have that or that. I think it just always like poured out of him, out of his subconscious, out of his dreams, whatever. So it basically is real. I mean, it is real in in his mind um, or was I mean unfortunately yeah. he passed away um, uh, that's tragic and um, so I think it's almost impossible to recreate something as convincing or as as uh, scary or impressive as his work um, if you try to do it it either has to happen and you have to be that person like Eager that where it happens in his mind's and he, uh, mind and he just lets it out um, but you can't force that that authenticity and that's why alien is so great as it is just because they took his creature that existed before the film so he didn't make it for the film Ridley oh, I didn't Scott, know that. no it really Scott found it in his book necronomicon um, but to to close the circle to your question or to your, uh, the centrifuge brain project so one of the outcomes of this friendship um, was that a Giger's agent Leslie, be, uh, that I cast him as the scientist in my uh, in the centrifuge brain project. So you so cast the, the so, agent. So the agent Leslie Barney <laughs> is the scientist in my short film, really? the centrifuge brain project. And he had never acted before, so he's not an actor, and um, but he's an incredibly creative guy who you can do anything with. Like he would like um, he's <laughs> up for any interesting. Oh wow! Project, um, and um, and always like uh, always up for adventure. Is he also in dissonance, or no? Um, no, in dissonance is another uh, interesting Agent? guy. No, that 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 guy is an old friend of my dad from my hometown who 
uh, is a rock and roll drummer on the weekends. That's what he lives from. Really? And, uh, also not an actor. But so Leslie, so I put him in front of the camera and wanted him to be the scientist because he's just the most interesting character in a way to look at or to, yeah. to listen to also and, and all that. And so, um, so, I, so his charisma, I, it was obvious that that like would make a big part of the Centrifuge Brain Project. But first you have to make it, yeah, I mean, it has to be filmed and performed right. So how to do that? So, and I had pre-written the ideas, but I had told him that, that the, the, the facts about these rides that he I wanted him to tell me had to run through his own filter of words and he had to feed it back to me as his own idea. But it didn't quite click until like after three hours or so, I was like, ah, oh, well, it's not, not fully working. Like I'm not totally believing you, like trying to coach him into becoming that character and identifying with the idea until I said, until I had the epiphany of what, what was the actual briefing that he needed. And I said, Leslie, um, can you please just lie to me? Like lie, like try to like lying is a trained thing that we can, um, that we can use from, from that everybody can use from, from their trained brains, like switching to lying hmm. is that's something we know. I mean, I'm just assuming, although I'm an extremely honest person, but I'm just assuming everybody <laughs> knows basically how lying works, which is you're trying to convince someone, someone truly of something that is not true, but you, that convincing. So, so in that moment, when I told Leslie, Leslie lie, lie, be a liar and that worked like he lied to me and like he's an, obviously an amazing right <laughs> and then he sounded uh, the most honest and yeah <laughs> and suddenly it clicked like oh that's how Natural. acting works I, I have to be a liar so um, and suddenly it, it was his own voice his totally convincing <laughs> delivery of that of those lines and did you did you start it all by just going to uh, some kind of uh, amusement park and taking those videos and, and then everything kind of be kind of mashed started connecting or? um it started yeah i had that idea in my mind for a while to to make crazy amusement rides but not crazy as um well crazy in a realistic way as if they would exist i yeah i, I always was fascinated by this world of amusement parks because it's so funny on the outside like loud music and blinking lights but somewhat depressing and serious on the on the inside meaning mm. if you look at the um the life of the people who run the rides it's i mean it's a tough business i think yeah. and also um the machines like i always looked behind the the blinking facade and thought what well, is unbelievable like this all this steel the motors the sounds of those motors it's like there's such a strange tension between yeah. those two layers that i had to do something with it so i did seven animations of seven rides with no narration first so they existed as a pure art project seven yeah. seven animations and then i thought well i had that experience of delivery being in film festivals and um and i wanted to go back to film festival so i i thought i uh i i suddenly had the idea how it would be to to create a narration around that yeah and i wrote it down in almost like in one hour like the idea was so clear to me that it uh, took like no effort to um, <laughs> that's when when something really works I yeah think. and it when it doesn't work it takes me a year and the same thing can take an hour if it really really works somehow um there's something very satisfying about this like kind of it's almost like a patent and that you repeat it you know that like 
you know, you already had those seven rides that you've developed, and it's just about someone explaining how they kind of came up with, yeah, you know, that thing. And and the audience is already like kind of after the two, the first two, they already understand this is what's going to happen. Like he's going to keep talking, you're going to keep revealing the next, and the next one, and the next one. And it's almost something <laughs> super satisfying about what is going to do next. You know, <laughs> right? If you're lucky, if you if you just no, you're not lucky, but you're in the media business if you understand it after the second ride. Because I thought and and. You probably also like us folks in the film and media business. We're for us, it's obvious after the second ride that that's a joke or fake or whatever. And it still is unbelievable, but I got tons and tons, probably hundreds or even thousands of comments and feedbacks. And, and um, among the comments on YouTube, you can read endlessly like people who, who discuss whether it's real or not and i heard from so many people like um that thought it was real although it has end credits saying that there's vfx yeah and a director and an actor involved which some people who have nothing to do with film don't even know what it means it doesn't even mean anything to them and that's kind of shocking in terms of if you think of propaganda and media and how oh, yeah. it influences us it's easier than we would wish it was exactly talking about i was just in in my podcast with wes i i briefly mentioned that my next short i'm working on a short now that i directed uh oh. with my uh with my girlfriend awesome. um i took uh two actors and i use uh, machine learning to turn their faces into celebrities so oh my God. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's it's a very controversial next. uh it's a very controversial concept that uh in the next few days i'm going to release and we'll see how people take it because Hopefully not get sued by no, by the celebrities, but um, well, it's something that's going to happen. So it's super important to to become aware of it, right? So if, exactly, if you make I, a project that rattles people a little about this, it couldn't be more helpful. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that you know we're we're playing on this. Uh, we're, we're we're walking on this line where um, we we. With some shots, we come so close to the, to making those people believable as those celebrities that we had to tone like kind of pull back from it a bit so that it's clear that they're not the actual people because we don't want to. Story wise, it's about people who use technology to look like the celebrities that they uh, that they fantasize about. It's like a couple that mm -hmm. I don't want to go too much into it, even though this episode is probably going to air after the short comes out, so it's okay. But. Um, But the um, kind of like the, so so in terms of like story wise, it makes sense for the technology not to be perfect, just enough for them to kind of believe, kind of right. suspend their disbelief and, and enjoy looking like their celebrity crushes. But um, but legally speaking, there's all this whole other aspect of it, and the way we approach it is that first of all, it's exciting because nobody's done something like this narratively yet. Um, and it's kind of like it's a unique time in history where this technology is not, you know, wide as wide as, as it's probably going to be in, right. in a few years. So this story, you can still tell the story now and people people's reaction to this story is still going to be somewhat pure and and uh, and shocked. Whereas two years from now, this story is not going to be as shocking because people are going to kind of get used to it. Uh, yeah. So it's like kind of like this place where this is the right time to tell the story. And at the same time, we're risking, you know, legal action in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah. But art, you know, it's like we're artists, we're t storytellers, and we feel like we have to tell the story. And, and in a way, telling this story is yeah. also going to maybe prepare people in a way to this near future that, that they're, you know, yeah. about to, to 
to live through and and uh, but it's, it kind of got I can't me can't wait to see that actually it sounds sounds really exciting so how long until you um, oh we're doing final mix tomorrow and the visual effects are pretty much like almost there it's just we might do a bit a bit of tweaks afterwards but uh we're almost there like a few how, days. how long is the short it's four minutes four minutes okay it's, it's like very short length. yeah yeah i try to keep it short yeah um but back to uh back to centrifuge and and also window crossing street i mean and the whole kind of mixing cg with live action in a way that as you discovered you just you know as you just uh, uh explained that a lot of people don't really understand that it's visual effects some people just are kind of believing what they see it kind of make i was just thinking before we started talking about how part of what we do as cg artists is you know we can we call it art but part of it is forgery <laughs> it's like we're forging footage to make it look like it was really shot that way especially when you go down the right. documentary style kind of rabbit hole you you can't avoid being in a place where people believe what they see and you're working really hard to make them believe what they see yeah. i mean the of course it has to do with the yeah the format and i'm delivering it as truth right in a in a documentary format which i mean obviously uh, then um misguides people into or it looks like it has the goal to guide people into believing its truth um which i never thought about that way because for me it was so obvious that i always just thought as irony and and satire i i would never have come to the thought actually that um and that's why there are these end credits which don't hide anything like if i had tried to make it a real f like fake um that is there to to tell a lie i wouldn't have put end credits that reveal everything still yeah. it's uh, that's why it's very entertaining to me that even now every day after i mean it's nine eight years since that film came out on youtube um there are comments of people thinking they're smart to reveal that that's a fake <laughs> so they're going like like arguing why that's obviously fake etc and, and i'm always thinking like well, i never tried to <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to, to say that, that yeah. that's real um but that whole contro controver controversy is um is is super interesting and exciting now because we're now i mean obviously since at least since the latest elections um or the 2016 elections are like we're now like deep in trouble with this whole like what's truth what's not yeah. truth and how do we even manage that and all that and it's i don't know where this is gonna go and i made this film when it's already was a topic i mean with visual effects and and the digital digitalization of our world since at least 2000 or so it's a big topic obviously but now it's becoming reality and it's yeah. it's uh, going forward and your film steps in the same um yeah kind in, of controversial in, and and uh fake news type yeah. world but yeah. i think it's good i think people should be more skeptical about what they see and the fact that you know a lot of people believe or, or at least a lot of people finding it important to point out that this is not real. You're right. It, it seems kind of ridiculous because, like, of course it's not real. Like, you know, people, nobody would let people swing out, you know, like upside yeah. down like that. Or, I uh, mean, you could almost say we should make projects that train people spotting right. it and understanding and recognizing it, like training people. But it's not that easy because, like, 
something like the centrifuge brain project is is easy to spot but yeah the, the real stuff out there is not easy to spot i mean it uh, it can just be done by editing right, right. it doesn't even need visual effects it just needs some editing and you yeah, don't know anymore what to believe oh there there's this one amazing film by the way that was an inspiration when now this is a much bigger and more talked about topic but in i don't know from when it is like must be 15 years old or so or at least 10 uh, i think it's called in german if i translate the title it's called kubrick nixon and the and the man in the moon i think i'm not sure what the english title is it's a mockumentary yes. yeah, fake yeah, yeah, documentary yeah. about that. about how kubrick faked the moon, the moon landing. landing and the smart <laughs> The smartness of it is that the film itself, in the end, um, it reveals itself. It shows you just by watching it how easy you were to misguided, yeah. but reveal reveals it in the same uh, in the same go. Basically, reveals it, and so you you first believe because it's so convincing, and yet then you you. Uh, discover your own um how do you say in english like, i'm missing the words here but like uh, your own mistakes basically because mm -hmm. it was just sound bites from famous figures like donald rumsfeld and others that made it 100 convincing and in the end you see they were just taken out of edits of other contexts and, and that's all it needed that's wow. all it needed to make it 100 convincing so that yeah, that's crazy. a good example so everybody please watch that film whatever the english title might be but maybe kubrick nixon and the man in the moon something like that yeah or that kubrick the faked the moon landing or some, yeah, yeah. something like that look it up yeah it's yeah. on youtube i think it's available it? freely oh. I, I think so okay. I, i believe i saw it on youtube yes, that's a training piece it's a real yeah. training piece after watching that you think like okay so imagine any statement that you hear in a different context could it be from a different context is the contract context uh, uh, also verified kind of yeah but the interesting thing i i learned from from my short with those actors is that even though they look like george clooney and rachel mcadams they don't um they don't act like them because it's right. different actors so it's yeah. like and in a way if, if you look at like you know 10 years in the future or even now when you look at andy circus playing um Godzilla. No, he's playing uh, King Kong or or right. Caesar in in Planet of the Apes and stuff. Yeah, he doesn't look like Andy Circus, but it's Andy Circus' performance right. that drives it. So you can't take away the talent. It's you know, if actors, if, if right. any if any famous actor says, oh, what, you know, what am I going to do now? And my face is going to get used by someone else. It's like no, it just shows that you are more than just your face. Right. I mean, in the end, the convincingness of a performance, or maybe even the emotional impact, might be. Um, just a matter of machine learning and deep learning in the end but I think one thing we still have um, is life experience and originality Yeah. but I, I mean in the end I'm not sure if not all of that might be emulated one day might be but still yeah. we have some things like life experience and originality that that are probably hard to take away because any deep learning or machine learning you need statistic high volumes of data to be able to match that right. so you match whatever is the common demeanor um, of something but exactly. not the new step the next step the, the, the spontaneity yeah, and the, that kind, yeah, that the animalities but maybe would, they will be able to emulate that yeah too, i'm sure they, the next step then <laughs> yeah. at some point will <laughs> also be inject that. some I mean, spontaneity there's this book um 
uh, it's quite a popular bestseller not a niche i think but a niche, uh, it's um super intelligence by nick bostrom a I think an I'm... AI book that mm -hmm. was enough for me to open my eyes about the significance and danger and uh, yeah importance of that topic, like how um, impactful and 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 important it is to to think about it. So, yeah, super. there's also the uh, it's called uh, Homo Deus. You know that one by I, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I didn't read that one. But you, have you heard of it? It's kind of like uh, he, he wrote The Brief it, History yeah, of Mankind, which is his first yep. one, Sapiens, The Brief History of Mankind. And the new one is Homo Deus, uh, The History of Tomorrow, or something like that. Uh -huh. So it's basically kind of a... And in that AI, he um, makes the prediction that AI is going to become the next kind of evolutionary step. And right. uh, we must hang on to consciousness because AI... He says the fact that... like. Everybody's talking about when machines are going to become conscious, but his argument is that consciousness is not necessarily a higher step in 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 intelligence. Consciousness might actually just be a side, a byproduct of intelligence mm -hmm. that humans have, but it might not be something that machines have. But it still yeah. doesn't mean those machines are not going to be potentially destructive and right. going to kind of uh, shoo us off from the. Right. to the edges of, of history so it's still about it's it's more about kind of you know um appreciating our consciousness and celebrating it and and kind of <laughs> holding yeah. on to it <laughs> um that's a good point let's let's celebrate our consciousness i think uh centrifuge <laughs> also just when you talked about it and we talked about i don't know if we mentioned it but like fantastic realism seems to be something that you know it has it kind of touches upon that you know in a way because uh, fantastic realism is basically like we accept, you know, you accept something that's completely fictional in your reality and, and treat it as, as it's like it's always been there kind of thing. In, in right. Which is kind yeah. of what District 9 does as yeah. well and, and what Centrifuge is, is as well. And um, I was kind of curious. There's all this short film that, that it reminds me of. Maybe you've seen it from maybe 15 or, or years ago uh, about some. Uh, it's It looks like a home video of a kid who plays with a rabbit. But the thing about it is the rabbit is like five times or ten <laughs> times as big as a normal rabbit. And they use this that. very subtle visual effects to basically turn the rabbit into the huge thing. <laughs> and it's basically just Sounds like a, a kid. It's, all, it's like, it's a, it sounds like an authentic recording of a kid talking about how, you know, he loves his rabbit and he found the rabbit and they, you know, they made a, a house for the rabbit and stuff. <laughs> and then it ends with one day the rabbit escaped and you see like a hole the size of like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, two meter wide hole in the ground because he escaped from his house. And it's just, that's all I think the short is essentially. It's just like, I, I have not seen it, unfortunately. What, but I think what it, it predates, uh, I think maybe 2000 and two or three ah, like it's very old yeah. uh, well from 2005 to 2015 i was i saw almost every short, every short because i was on out. all the film festivals um for 10 years but not before so it seems I, like I it's long. missed that one yeah mm. but i'll try I, I keep trying to look for it and, and i'm maybe maybe i'll find it uh but uh, anyway it's just right. in my yeah i mean in my childhood the influences um from our parents side stuff that I um, grew up with was um, artists like Dali, for example, uh, who had, like, yeah, surrealism, basically, yeah. and Escher, MC Escher, right, which of is like kind of half science, half architecture and art. 
I love MC Ash's um, things. It makes a lot of sense now that you mention it because a lot of your stuff is kind of yeah, it's definitely in there. Uh, yeah, and and um, then there was, I think my parents and especially my dad also had a fable for made-up realities in a playful way. Meaning, um, for example, we had this wonderful, wonderful book. I think it's called the Big Book of Gnomes. Have you heard of that? It's like, very familiar, but it's from the eighties, I think, or seventies. Um, it's uh, I, I can recommend it to anyone, especially anyone with kids, but even without kids. It's like an encyclopedia about gnomes, like how gnomes, the, the ones with the, the spiky or the pointy long hats on their heads, the, like garden gnomes, basically, yeah. how they really live in their own society and civilization, how like everything about them. It's like an encyclopedia with wonderful um, illust uh, illustrations. And that was a fake reality. I remember looking through that book a hundred times as a kid and still today. Um, and yeah, wrapping my mind around that someone made a book that is like dead seriously explaining <laughs> the details of a creature that does not exist, but so beautifully detailed and, and real with everything like even diseases, what kind of diseases they have, what kind of wow. uh, uh, like blueprint plans of their um, houses and and anything, everything was thought through. So that's world building, essentially. Yeah. And I didn't come across the term of world building until meeting Alex McDowell, who for me is like a world building icon, basically, mm -hmm. um, which is what we do in films, but which is also what I do in my, my own free art, basically, um, which is um, thinking up alternate realities from the ground up with all their all their rules and all their conditions and and um, parameters that form them and and that's in the end what is a great job doing for movies world building um thinking up um alternate realities yeah. which is what you do nowadays essentially yeah. right and so curious about like you we talked about a bit about how you moved here four years ago yeah um Can you describe a bit more? Like, what, what was there a specific job offer, or were there other job offers before um, that you? So it was. I didn't move here for a specific job offer. I, uh, as I said, like between the my awards for de delivery in 2005 and our move in 2015, there were 10 years in which I started to um, connect to Hollywood or the film business, also London and England, uh, and a little bit the German film business in every way I could. So whenever I heard or saw an opportunity to go towards feature films, which are my biggest passion emotionally, so I think there's nothing with a bigger emotional impact for me than films, um, I, I, I went into that direction. And um, my films that toured the festivals over those 10 years, my three short films, opened a lot of doors. So I got um, tons and tons of emails from production companies that wanted to work with me. Or um, then after the Centrifuge Brain Project, um, the three or four or five big agencies from LA became interested. Um, um, and I then flew over here shortly before the birth of our daughter in 2020. 2012 or 2013 to sign with UTA United Talent yeah. Agency as a director um, on the sex on the hype of, on the wave of my short film Centrifuge Brain Project. Who is your uh, your agent? My UTA. agent is Jason Burns. 
Jason Burns. Jason okay, Burns. And they, they signed you on as a director. What, do, what you, did you have um, projects that you were developing at the time? As yeah, a director, so then, or? then um, I got, like, there were lots of opportunities. I didn't yet live here, so I lived still in Germany. I just flew over here to sign with them. And, and then I met with a ton of production companies and uh, read scripts and um, explored all kinds of ideas. Like, many, many companies wanted to make a feature film out of the Centrifuge Brain Project, but... It's somehow um, absolutely my own fault, basically. I did not really engage fully or use the possibilities to become a director, really, for several reasons. Like, not yet, I'd say. Mm -hmm. All of that is still going on. So, uh, But I am most, like, one of the biggest reasons, or let, let, let me describe it this way. I, I was basically on the point that every filmmaker wishes himself to be which is you have a successful short film all the companies are calling they all want to meet you and they're basically all asking and what do you want to do do you have a script and i had no script yeah. so prepared filmmakers have three scripts in their drawer and and are ready to go i am somehow difficult with that um super critical with myself um to find the right thing so i don't want to do anything just anything just for the sake of doing it i, I only want to do the one and only right thing and that then if you don't have that right and that, so that's one reason that it that many of the things that i could have done didn't feel right they weren't like just not the perfect or just didn't feel like that's me that's but if i don't have in my own pocket to present what is me what i want to do as a feature film then that's a problem but and the other thing probably bigger uh is just life because then we had a baby and we moved here and had a second baby and all of that um just it, it shifted more to the reality of um dealing with day-to-day -day life rather than the adventurous thing of going into movie pitches like writing pitching developing all that is like basically you can definitely like write off two unpaid years for that right until you really make a movie or something and that's another reality that i had just too much going on also successful in a way like everything else went great to um yeah to have the energy and time free to to really go into that but all of that is still pending like i'm absolutely like 100 um motivated and ready and had like started to write a couple of things then stopped again and but all the connections are there and uh it's all um when i need them so i'm right now steering back to that by starting to direct commercials so i signed with nexus studios a london based oh. company that now has an la office and uh, they have an amazing i find artistic understanding of making commercial work branded work and um through that i try to basically kick my own ass back into that direction right <laughs> because for making like free roaming short films i don't have the time right now anymore so for me to to stay like on track of directing anything i yes. i'd have to make something that at the same time also pays the bills pays the so. bills so but, then you signed with uta oh yeah and so, uh, where were we coming from? Which um, oh, how I got moved. here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so then another important step was being part of Ron Diamond's animation show of shows, which oh, is yeah. a selection of short films that tours through all the studios. And um, so, he had the Centrifuge Brain project in his collection in 2012, and it was part of the tour of ten short films. 
and I came over here to tour with him. So we showed the film. So I was at Pixar, ILM, Dolby, Apple, Disney, all of those companies showing those films. And one of them was mine. And suddenly I saw all of it, like all of Hollywood, basically every company I was in there shaking hands, meeting people that was, um, and my big dream, by the way, was that we had a screening at the Skywalker ranch. Um, mm. the thing though, and that's the crazy story, but on the day that the screening was, um, meant to happen of, of the centrifuge frame projects and, and the other films at the Skywalker ranch was the same day that Lucas sold his companies to Disney. So suddenly all, everything changed, the whole schedule changed oh, wow. and there was no more screening. Like at the, uh, it was suddenly everything was about this huge deal and screening was canceled. But oh, no. anyway, after this tour, I basically said to my wife, Zyka, um, that, I think we should like we had talked about it for quite a while but that was like let's do it and I'm super lucky and thankful that she she is on board with that whole adventure and so we had learned from friends of ours who had moved here before and then moved back to Germany and back here again with all kinds of troubles because of visa and how difficult it was with the visa and depending on on some employer and job I learned that the best way would be to get a green card right away and move with that green card, be free and independent. And um, and so it was. It became quite of a, a bit of a risky thing. Meaning, I went through the two-year process basically of um, getting a so-called EB1 green card. That's a, a category which is called alien with extraordinary abilities. Which I'm super amazed to be an alien. Like after. Figures alien, and, yeah. Uh, great to be to be one, and um, you look a so bit different th than this, uh, alien. Though. I hope a little, but so what you need for that is like you need lots of press and awards and all kinds of like references, basically, and letters and all that, and um, hand it in, and it's a one-year process, and then after that year, it's another year for the preparations to move, and you get health, you get X-ray, you get your blood is taken really? and all that yeah oh yeah, yeah. like you scan so for crazy. diseases and everything before you're allowed <laughs> to immigrate yeah and we went through all that and then um and all we had moving here we broke everything down in germany we sold or gave away everything like every furniture and anything we with a couple of boxes we moved here and a two-year-old daughter and some savings um that we just calculated would be enough for a couple of months or so and uh, and f about 50 contacts like let's say 50 companies or people that were saying hey come over here and we'll do something together big like good names or good enough uh, like uh, great um, people from from the big business so that yeah so the, so we made that leap of faith basically into uh, not knowing what would happen so we moved here in 2015, arrived here, arrived at some Airbnb in Venice at the beach first because I thought it, it has to feel good. Like we have to arrive and it has to feel, it can't feel but like a mistake. It has to right. feel good right away. Otherwise, we'll be in trouble psychologically. <laughs> and But the trouble still came. Like three days, four days after we arrived here, I was like, oh shit, like this is even more expensive than I thought. So life here is three times as expensive as in wow. Germany. I didn't think it was that, like I calculated That's maybe much. two times 
as expensive, but it felt like three times as expensive. Everything like groceries or uh, and of course rent, but everything else, um, restaurants, whatever. Yeah. And so I did feel a little bit of panic. Like it was suddenly was like, okay, well now, now what? Now, now, now all these contacts. <laughs> you now get something a bit paid has to happen. Three times like, more than you're used to. <laughs> yeah. So something has to happen now, and and luckily, so my first job was um, Alex McDowell's company, 5D Global, Global, 5D Global Studio. They called right away and they had a job for me right away, which was um, amazing. So uh, that was just Great. the, most, the fant most fantastic start. Worked with them for Nike um, for some... For a commercial? Um, yeah, some um, high-profile project that was internal only, though. Oh, uh, wow. Not uh, to be published. <clears throat> And and then one week, while I was on that job, one week later, um, Marvel called for um, Guardians. Guardians of the Galaxy Two, and that was then the entrance to the Union. Wow! Was and once you're in the Union, James Gunn or uh, yeah, James well James Gunn, Gunn but uh, I got the call from Ramsey Avery, I think, or an email from Ramsey Avery, yeah. who was the supervising art director, and then met with Scott Chambliss, the production designer, and that was just. Like getting that job up one week after we landed here was heaven sent really because yeah. where they had not they didn't even know i moved here so they thought i was in germany and whether <laughs> they could hire me remote or something and then so i worked on since then i worked on five marvel shows so when you work there i mean forgive me for asking maybe the obvious but like do they open up like is it you sit with the production designer in their office in the production office and just you have a, a station there and you work from there um in general you mean the yeah design? In, in, as a as a world builder for um, feature well, films like there's that there's always there always is an art department the art department is depending on the size of the films but it's for small films it's just a handful of people but for the big marvel films it can be like 20 30 50 people um that are the concept artists the art directors um the set designers and some other like model makers etc um, and the production designer and the supervising art director in a an office space basically um in an and that's all pre-production meaning it's early days so it's right. just uh it sometimes was just for example on black panther it was just um me and hannah beachler the production designer were the first two people basically thinking about the design of this wow um, of Wakanda and and um, yeah of Wakanda or uh, in, in some cases it's, it's super early so you're very like close with the director writer production designer on some things and in other cases I came on board late like on the Lion King the new Disney Lion King remake um, I came on board when they were already half a year in so I just was uh, jumping on the train when it was running and there were already a ton of people working and um, yeah, but there's always this art department, which is different for every film, the way it's set up, and um, that then travels with the film to where it's shot. So many of the Marvel films, for example, are shot in Atlanta. So you had to uh, move around there Atlanta. And... So you have to go there for a couple of weeks or months, and um, then come back for another one. So when and you travel, what what is your role then? You still keep designing new things yeah, and just concept you... art. Um, but when you travel, then there where they shoot, stuff gets built. 
And that's where it becomes super exciting for me because I've always worked mostly digital, but when they start building a big spaceship or a big whatever, the throne room of uh, T'Challa or something yeah. like that, based on my designs, um, that is total, like, that's absolutely my childhood dream right there. Right. And I can't believe that's happening. And, <laughs> and um, that's happening then on location. So it's more about the practical side suddenly. Stuff has to get built while here in in the offices here whether it's marvel or any other company it's it's that that's when that's the dream phase when when everything is being dreamed up and totally yeah. free yeah so that was when you have time a bit more time if you don't feel like the pressure of like you know production and having to be done on time exactly i think it's the i it's the best spot i could imagine in movie making is this pre-production phase Because in the beginning, really, everything is open and free and um, fun, often, not always, but often just fun and joy doing that. And of course, with every month that passes and gets closer, first to shooting and then later in visual effects, which I'm luckily not not so involved in, um, it, it turns into pure stress. Yeah. hell of stress I guess so you're happy you're not involved in the visual effects side of things as you're uh, more yeah. in, the, in the design thing oh yeah that's it's actually an important thing to to mention to listeners out there maybe I didn't know where I had no idea early on about the difference of pre and post production I always saw myself in post I thought all the big stuff because when I went to SIGGRAPH or any of those conferences it was always post post like visual effects so I, th I, th I thought that's my world and somehow because I've always focused on the artistic side rather than the technical side I ended up in pre production which is the conceptualizing of right. things and that was I think a very very good thing I think working pre is um is just much better. I think you, the closer you get to the final deadline of delivering something, um, the more in trouble you are, basically. Yeah. So you're both crunched with time and yep. you're, you're worried about executing rather than on creating, you know, and it's, yeah. That's why I was, a, I always, for me, it's different. I, I, one of the recent projects I did was a 360 kind of projection thing and I, and I worked both as a VFX supervisor, but also a, I did all the previs. And the previous is all, you know, blocks and buildings. And I, that's the things that I like. I don't like to, to dive into all the detail and stuff. So it's, right. it's a lot of fun. It's like playing with Legos and then having artists kind of paint over your crude Lego parts, you know, make them look like, like whatever it is right. that they need to look like. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that that's where I, I totally feel the, the connection to that exciting part, which is like, you know, this is where you can move a mountain from one side to the other and be like this is where the mountain is going to be now make sure it looks nice you know it's but yep. those decisions are the, huge, the, the the biggest decisions and like that that kind of uh flexibility that filmmakers have nowadays to like this design the world in any way they see fit is is pretty ama amazing and remarkable and it's great to be in that in that junction you know so early in the project so for right. you before you before you moved out here you you had so film box what when how big did it ever filmbox was your company framebox framebox Fra framebox so it's still my website and my brand in a way framebox um it never became a um, big company in the beginning me and uh, toby, toby my yeah. my friend back then and still a good friend of mine um we thought 
we just didn't know another way. We thought um, founding your little media production company and starting to grow and employ people is the way to go. And mostly for TV and advertising, that was like the obvious thing where there were jobs lying around on the street, basically uh, everywhere. And so that's, we started that in 1999 or 1998, 18, 19 years old. I was still going to school. Um, Wow. And yeah, it was a total double life. So I was in like basically dressed in a suit pitching some whatever magazine design for a company or something like that in, in corporate offices. And then on the next day, going back to school and sitting in the bench and learning French or something like that. Yeah, a Really a bit of a bizarre double life, but I couldn't wait. Like I was just ready to start business basically or a, a creative, creative business. But I realized then after two, three years, that's not totally not my thing because the more success you would have in that direction, the more of a manager right. and businessman you would have to become. So the direction just was wrong to me. I was like, wait, where am I? What do I want to be in the end? Do I want to be employing a hundred people and be rich because of that? And, but be in meetings and on the phone and wearing a suit only <laughs> every day. Like, and um, I felt like, no, there's something wrong. Like that's not, what I want to do and um, so I thought no I better downsize and totally focused only on what I can do with my own hands basically mm -hmm. and that's when I also steered towards art um, fine arts um, which is a totally different track by the way uh, of my life a big track of my life where I do exhibitions in museums and galleries and do a, um, I did a lot of light installations on buildings not so much anymore now it's like more projection mapping yeah. projection mapping but then also permanent installations of um, led based things oh. where the color for example my biggest project was um, on the high bridge in rendsburg in the northern part of germany where it's a permanent installation that's still active today where since a couple of years where any pedestrian who comes by that bridge can turn a metal wheel it's a giant bridge the bridge has twice as much steel as the eiffel tower wow and um you can turn a wheel on your side of the bridge and then the color of the bridge will turn um <laughs> until you stop turning until you select the color that you want it to be and and then there is a ferry that is hanging on cables that is crossing the river Uh, every couple of minutes and that transports this ferry takes your color and physically transports it in 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 with big spotlights over to the other side of the bridge wow and then your color is lighting on the other side and then someone else can go and change it there and, and it gets sent back with the next ferry ride to your side so basically what it does is um with every crossing of this ferry um parallel also a big like colored light crosses the river as well yeah and those kind of artistic public permanent installations so did you come up with that idea yeah i was commissioned to come up with Your... a concept after wow. they saw another lighting project in um which is a water tower that always is lit in a color reflecting the temperature real time basically oh, wow um they saw that and they commissioned me for for the bridge and but also there it was so much administrative work getting the permits to do that and the construction aspect of it it was three years of work in like something like two hundred thousand or 
euros so more in dollars budget and the whole process around that i uh, wasn't also wasn't really what i was looking for as an artist because it was basically one day of The, having the creative idea and then three years of executing it wow. and yeah. running to the construction site all the time <sighs> and looking that everything is built right and I was like nah I need to sit there basically every day and and dream and be and exist and live in my dream worlds that's what I want to do and so that's um, did you did you yeah. know about the role of like a conceptual artist for films before you moved to LA I did yeah I th uh, well making offs the making off of any yeah. film was always the most fascinating thing to me so yeah. um, I mean as many of us and probably the listeners I guess we're the type who watches the making off of, yeah. of any DVD more than the movie itself or so especially the aliens ones and the oh yeah or I guess it kind of brings you to the to the question because I always saw you you know just from from the outside seeing your work you know being featured on all you know and a lot and so much of it is is moving is an, is animated um how much of your conceptual work has animation in it because i think animation um, is yeah it's like your your strong suit for sure i mean that's an interesting question because that there is a lot about that um so for me there was never there were never these different departments Uh, it's all so I I I self-taught my uh, um, yeah basically all that stuff I never learned really like here you would have art center etc I went to study media design in Germany and you learn some things there but the real all, all the 3D depth is self-taught and um, so um, what I'm uh, uh, what I want to say is um, I grew up without knowing these separation into departments like there's a modeling department a texture department animation department um rendering lighting all of that is separate here in the big movies and right. you learn it separate if you go to Noman or any of those schools or so which are amazing you have to choose. You learn that professional way to yeah. do it and i never learned it that way for me it was one single process basically from the idea to the final image there was no um distinction yeah it, it was one big step and it was on the one hand a hard time for me to learn that it's done differently in the real movie world and on the other hand also an advantage because now in um i use that a lot so in the art departments i animate things a lot so my concepts i mean a lot of my concepts are still uh still images like they usually are in art departments still image concept art but then every once in a while let's say like every two weeks i present something to the director or um, production designer that is moving because it just makes more sense mm -hmm. to show like many ideas are in motion and it wasn't possible when you just had um a, a pen and paper right. 30 40 years ago that wasn't possible but now it is and in the beginning like i remember like 10 years ago when I worked on Arthur Christmas for Artman Animations and then Sony, it's a co-production between Artman and Sony, they were they were kind of shocked that things were suddenly moving, like that I <laughs> delivered animations instead of stills very early, like as the first presentation of an idea, it was already moving and that was right. uh, in motion and, the, and I didn't realize that was a big deal. I was, <laughs> like, for me, it was like, wait, I, I always like, what's, why should I stop when it's an image? Why can I just not do a couple of keyframes and press render? And then it's an animation. Right. So never occurred to me. Then I did that a lot. And I see now 
some other people doing it, but now the big, big step happened, which is going into real-time and virtual production. Yeah. So that was an experience for me on The Lion King and now on that new movie that I worked with Wes on. He, he, so he mentioned what it's called, so you can probably mouse say guard. It, mouse, yeah. the mouse yeah. guard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to, like, of course, don't, <laughs> Keep, uh, not to reveal anything from inside yeah. those productions, but um, it's um, that feels like suddenly everything I always did, which is build up the whole world in 3D, fully textured, all in one step, um, and move in them freely, is suddenly uh, reaching kind of mainstream. Not fully yet, but it will be in a few years. So basically what you brought in is basically your, your like kind of hidden sauce or special sauce of being... Mm -hmm the motion kind of motion guy and, yeah I is now might become something that people are just going to take for granted or i think um yeah i mean there's always this danger that when you present them something like that um suddenly they don't want to see anything else anymore so you, you yeah. start showing them an animation and suddenly they think everything they want to see um, has to be I'm, moving I'm now yeah just it has to be now an animation and that creates uh like pressure for everybody for me but also for others around me who maybe are not used to uh, to animate um but i mean first of all it was or is my natural way of working so i just work like i feel it's right i would work like that for my own short so i didn't even think about it i just delivered what or deliver what what is my natural way of working and that seemed yeah it seemed to just click very well obviously with directors and production designers and and also it's it's somehow the natural step forward so with the digitalization of everything and the tools we have and now the real-time tools like unreal engine or unity um it now yeah is all going into that direction that everybody suddenly has to become an all-rounder and animate which i must say I don't only love that. So I love it for myself, obviously, because it's, um, yeah, as I said, it's what I've always done. But the highest respect I have for someone who can take a pen and a paper and make an amazing drawing, that's because I can't do that. So I, I don't know any more powerful skill that I would love to have as to simply draw. It might mm -hmm. be just black and white. Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think, I mean, I have always... Whenever I have any idea, I have to go through big lengths to express those, it. Like, yeah, all those different uh, steps. Either I kit bash something, or I, I I model something, or and then I have to render it somehow or whatever. But the power, like people who who are such good drawers that they can just um, paint anything they have in their mind, draw it realistically or just roughly, but with an impact. Um, storyboarders um, right. that that shoot it out there or um, Sid Mead, if I look um, mm -hmm. at his work, and especially like in the 60s, like when yeah. his stuff is already still as good or better than the digital stuff today, I just can't believe it. That's the real power to me. So I, when I'm in the art departments, I'm always like, my heroes are the guys who can, um, who who can draw, do yeah. that, really. Like, so <laughs> if I am to direct... And they feel um, intimidated by the fact that you can move things and... Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it seems like it, there's it's a wave rolling over everything. It's the digitalization of everything, yeah. and um, but um, I think like 
you can see that, for example, also with guys like Christopher Nolan, maybe who wants to do everything in miniatures that um, that he can and not digitally. I think I it's it's ironic because I do everything digital, but I have the highest admiration for that kind of work. So yeah. I, I think I'd love to do everything practical and hand-drawn rather than digital. It's probably just because I don't do that. So you'd always want what you don't mm -hmm. have Whatever at reach. You, you look for the challenge, yeah. Mm. Um, um, yeah. And uh, do you ever... Uh, one thing I noticed in your reel, there's this uh, piece of uh, motion you did for, I think it was a documentary about the Berlin Wall or something like that. Right. And that kind of uh, stood out. It's like, you know, just the, the camera movement and the, and the choreography with the music and that everything there felt very, um, very kind of dance-like, you know, and, and, and very beautifully choreographed and and i noticed it in other things that you've seen and even the just the end credit of centrifuge is, is <laughs> a pleasure to just watch uh how much of that goes into what you do today in preparation for films do, do directors mm. ever take ideas from your visualizations into the final film or uh, well there so first of all i yes i did lots of work for german documentaries about the berlin wall and the second world war and and lots of history stuff that's what that what that piece is from that you mentioned and it's um combining music and images as a dance has always been um something i love to do because it has um music as a catalyst has the strongest impact to me like music is even stronger than the image itself so i i find like any scene it's not not my own wisdom it's someone else said that before me but it's true that uh, uh you could play any scene without the image and it would still work and have that emotional impact but if you take the sound away and you play only the image it us usually loses that emotional impact so it's the sound that drives it so the strong like pushing you forward with the rhythm and syncing that with the image for me is, is, is something I absolutely love um, but you asked about whether what, I, what, what was well, your question whether you work dark? nowadays as, as, a, as a visual concept concept artist do you ever use music and mm. and also Those camera movements, do they ever find their way into the film well, itself? I think with music in the film jobs that I have now, I don't have much to do with music. On Arthur Christmas, I did some editing synced to the music, but that is not it's not really a part of what I do. But the moves itself, yes, they do. Like, for example, in many, many cases, like the... Um, um, what... A, bigger one was for example the moment when in black panther the ship flies through the holographic forest mm, and then yeah. the city is revealed for the first time that right. was a shot that i originally um drafted, uh, drafted basically yeah. so it was like early days it was just like two weeks into the production i had a rough model of the of the city and sat together with ryan kugler the director and hannah beachler the production designer and they had Like he th Ryan, I think he threw out that idea of a hologram, and they would fly through it, and I animated it, and they loved it, and it's pretty much the same <laughs> in the film now. So that yeah. that's one. Or in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the opening where they have this big fight against that wobbly monster on the power station. It's yeah, this, and and Groot uh, dances exactly, with uh, exactly. headphones on. Yeah, that was one where I did like basically previs, but then what they 
what the real previous, which is the third floor, the company, the third floor in that case, yeah. did it went much, much, much further. I mean, they worked it out, they worked it all out. But of course, the first, like the basically the motion of the machines around Groot's dance, it's those energy rings that those balls of energy with mm -hmm. rings of batteries that are fueled around this power station. That was. That's pretty much exactly my animation of what's really? going on there. Yes. Uh, by the way, though, cre big credit to Ian McFadden, who had the original idea of how that power station um, would, would work, would like work. In the logic, and all under the amazing like design direction from Scott Chambliss, of course. Yeah, I think that's the biggest kind of question that I had looming when I I think I'm, I bumped into you at Seagraph. I don't know if you remember two years ago. Yeah, it's like oh, did. Uh, did we yeah yeah so, I, i just yeah. caught you yeah, on the yeah, hallway yeah. and i was like you're till novak and he's like how do you know what i <laughs> what i look like right. it's because of, because of uh, for some yeah. reason you know your your face just like i was like <laughs> i saw that in the frame box in the in the frame box website that's, and that's amazing yeah, <laughs> yeah. well um, makes me feel famous for a very short moment of time yeah no i was, uh, I was like <laughs> hey i'm a fan you probably don't get that much but i'm a fanboy um but then when you said that you moved that i was like because i remembered you were in germany and i didn't realize you moved to la and you said you're working as a concert and i kind of went back home and i was like till novak now works as a concept artist for like you know big films like what what is that like you know what because it makes a lot of sense but i was like you know Because it's mm -hmm. it's one of those things. I think um, we're about to finish. We're, we're kind of no, no, no. <laughs> going a bit uh, over. But it's one of no those problem. things where um, I know a handful of people who are kind of like you. They're self-taught. They started out very early when you know they were the only ones in their kind of universe doing 3D, and uh, and one of the very few people that seem to be really good at so many aspects of it so you can do motion and you can obviously model mm. and do everything that needs to be done and like kind of like that multidisciplinary um uh clash of, of talents that come together just right where you can at the age of 18 start a company and and become your own thing but mm. how does that translate into the hollywood machine where people right. come in and they and they're kind of locked into their corners right. one person does one thing and well yeah absolutely i mean super important for me and my understanding of myself is that that is neither the end of where I'm now ending up and staying forever nor is it the only thing I'm doing right now it's it's maybe the biggest in term of in terms of public exposure obviously if a yes. film like Black Panther uh, or something like that is like huge and covers everything else I do in terms of um, uh, visibility but I, for example, now, right now, I just finished um, doing projections for an opera in Germany. So um, Axel Ranisch, a great director, a friend of mine, um, directs the opera. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure what the English title is, but if I translate it literally, it would be The Love to the Three Oranges by Prokofiev, okay. which is in the, sure Stuttgart, the big Stuttgart opera, a proper big opera production that I worked for. Or I just had a fine arts solo exhibition also in Germany. So I do lots of things and the concept art for me is just one part of it. But it's right now the most important part for us to um, to live our life here in terms of the paycheck also. Yeah. Um, do you know who Tomek Beginski is? Oh, yeah. Um, he had his short film Cathedral. Yeah. And was 
a big hit in 2004, just one year before my short film Delivery came out. Really? Um, oh, yeah. okay, cool. So he and was here a few weeks ago, oh, he too. he was. Yeah, yeah he talked an, about it. Yeah, he's... I witnessed, like, his way parallel to when I was around uh, on yeah. the festivals, etc. So what he is having his own production company, is it um, so Platige? Platige, uh, yeah, Platige, but that's, uh, he's now more in the board of the direct directors. He's not active there. The, I don't know if you know, but he directed some cinematics for this video game based mm -hmm. on a Polish uh, graphic novel, I think, which is called uh, The Witcher, yeah. And okay. he's also an executive producer on Netflix on the show, and they're shooting it in Hungary. So he's there. Uh, oh, I've got to watch it then. It's coming out next year, I'm sure, or something like that. It just released like a snippet, uh, some kind of a makeup test a few weeks ago. But, um, yeah, I thought about him also because his shorts were also not action-driven right? Uh, in a way. I mean, uh, right. you know, Cathedral and he did uh, Fallen Art, if you remember that one, right. which is, yeah. I really yeah, love. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and the Kinetograph was, uh, they're not, yeah. they're very artistic in a way. Yeah. They're not. Uh, uh, it's true. And also he didn't, do a big feature film because right, I think no. if you're not going for the yeah action and also kind of fighting based or yeah. martial arts or yeah in a way interesting um, that's a good, good combat based themes yeah then you're having a harder time not not necessarily if you have a great script you can do it but it's harder uh, yeah. it's, it's just you need to provi provide more Mm -hmm. on your own to make that step I mean District 9 that was an amazing one and also I mean Gareth Edwards Monsters was an amazing yeah. thing as well well there would Very be well. more to talk about but yeah. uh, thank you so much for having me this was great yeah um, thanks for giving us I hope two hours of your time <laughs> I hope your ears are not bleeding from the no, boredom I, of my life not, not at all man it was <laughs> such a fun fun, uh, fun conversation thank you so much This was episode 13 of the Post Post Podcast with Till Novak. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, stay tuned. In a few weeks, we're going to be returning with another episode of the Post Post Podcast, this time with John Robson, a visual effects artist turned commercial director. And until next time, I'm David Gidali, and see you later.